Hello everyone and welcome to Classic Gaming Today, where we take a look at the gaming experiences of the past through the eyes of the present. I am your host Tony and today we are going to talk about Final Fight, the side-scrolling beat-em-up action game developed by Capcom and released into arcades in 1989 with a number of home console ports in the year or two that followed. We're going to be talking about Final Fight in just a couple minutes, but first, as is customary, we will get out of the way a little bit of housekeeping. This is episode number eight. I am excited. We are approaching episode number 10, which I don't know why. It's not really a milestone per se, but it's kind of exciting to me. We're getting there, and uh, we'll be there before the end of the month, actually, which is kind of awesome. But I do want to continue to build a community around this podcast and around just the concept of talking classic technology, classic gaming in general. If you'd like to reach out to me to either provide feedback or just talk games, you can reach out in a number of different ways, actually more specifically, too. I do have an email address, which is classicgamingtoday at gmail.com. I also have a Twitter account with the handle at classicgamingt. So if anybody wants to reach out, talk about games, or provide feedback, or suggest new games to, well, more specifically, old games to discuss on the podcast, let me know. I am definitely interested in hearing what you think. For anybody who may be new, welcome. I just want to take a minute to go over what the anatomy of an episode is going to be, because for the most part, we stick to this general structure for every single episode that we do. We will start by talking about the history of the game. That includes how the game was developed, why it was developed, its historical context, where it sits within history across the entirety of the computer or video game landscape. And once we talk history and go through how the game was made, we will dive into a sort of pseudo review. And I say pseudo review because it's not like we assign a numerical value to the game. We don't give it a rating on one to five stars or anything like that. But we do talk about the game from a couple of different perspectives. And they are graphics. How does the game look? Sound and music. How does it sound? What does the music sound like? Is it evocative or is it tinny, messy kinds of audio notes that really doesn't do much for your ears. We will also talk narrative and story, if the game has one, playability and controls, as well as the overall feel of playing the game, and that is all done to eventually reach a verdict as to whether the game is worth your time today or worth as much time today as what it may have been in the past. And when we get to that verdict, we will assign one of several categories. At the very top of our list is the Pantheon of Classic Gaming. If a game reaches the Pantheon, you know it's a good experience. You know it's something you should play. It doesn't matter that it was made 30 plus years ago. It is that darn good and you should go out of your way to play it because it is just one of those awesome experiences that everybody should experience at least once in their life. Right below the Pantheon, those are our golden oldies. So these are games that don't quite reach the Pantheon level. Maybe they didn't age quite as gracefully as those that are in the Pantheon, but they are still excellent games and still games that I would highly recommend that you play. If you have nostalgia for the game in particular, or you enjoy the genre that the game is in, you're almost definitely going to have a good time. You should definitely play these games, but they're not quite as good or they don't quite reach that Pantheon level. Below the Golden Oldies, we get to the Mediocre Mentions. These are games that eh, they probably didn't age all that well, or maybe they had some issues to begin with, even when they were released back 
20, 30 years ago. I can't really recommend you to play these games. You could still have a good time if you enjoy the genre or you enjoy games of that type. You may have a good time, but these are games that I cannot recommend you to play. And then finally, we reach the footnotes. These are the games that are best left in the annals of history. I have played them, so you don't have to. These are the games that have either aged very poorly, or they may have not been that great of a game to begin with, but these are ones that I cannot recommend. You could play it if you want to, if you really want to experience the game. I can't control you, so go right ahead. But I'm telling you, these are not games that I would recommend. So with that out of the way, we are going to start talking about the game of the day, that being the arcade beat-em-up classic, Final Fight. Final Fight was a side-scrolling beat-em-up action game developed by Capcom and released into the arcades in 1989 with a bunch of ports in the following years, including the Sega CD, the Super Nintendo, probably some others as well. I played it on the Super Nintendo personally when I was a kid, uh, in addition to the arcade, so that's where a lot of my experience comes from, at least back then. We're going to talk about that when we get to the review section of the discussion, but In order to fully understand how Final Fight came into being and how it was created, we have to take a look at Capcom, which was the company behind it. And specifically, we're going to look at Capcom back in the 1980s. So Capcom was originally founded in 1979 as the IRM Corporation, and that was founded by Kenzo Tsujimoto who was also the founder and president of the IREM Corporation, who anybody who listened to our episode on Neo Turf Masters may recall that IREM is the company that a lot of the developers that broke off to form the Nazca Corporation, who eventually developed Neo Turf Masters, most of those developers originated, if not all of the developers originated from the IREM Corporation. So the IRM Corporation, similar to IREM and not to be confused with IREM, was focused on the creation and distribution of electronic game machines, including traditional arcade machines. Now remember, this is back in the early 80s, late 70s time frame, so arcades were a little bit different than what they would become in the later 80s. These were much more rudimentary kind of machines, but the IRM Corporation was focused on delivering these electronic game machines inclusive of stand-up arcade cabinets. Through a series of organizational changes, IRM Corporation would eventually morph and merge with one of its subsidiaries, the Japan Capsule Computers Company, to create what would be known as Capcom. And this happened around 1983. And that's actually where the name Capcom came about. If you look at the name of the one company, Japan Capsule Computers Company, uh, it stands, Capcom actually stands for the phrase capsule computers, which is what the company had coined to distinguish itself from personal computers of the time. According to Capcom, all of their releases were intended to be, and I say this in quotes, a capsule packed to the brim with gaming fun. Hence, capsule computers became the company Capcom. So Capcom quickly found a footing in the arcade scene of the 1980s, creating such hits as 1942, Commando, and Ghosts and Goblins, which, by the way, is a really difficult game if anybody hasn't played it before. 
At the same time, Capcom began working licensing deals with various companies to port their titles to other computers and home consoles, like the Nintendo Entertainment System in North America, which was otherwise known as the Famicom or Family Computer System in Japan. So those and other titles helped to put Capcom on the map, but it was the creation of another game that really started to get people talking about the company, that being the original Street Fighter back in 1987. That ended up being Capcom's first competitive fighting game that they ever created. And for anybody who knows a little bit about Capcom, then you can realize or recognize that that was the first, but certainly not the last, competitive fighting game that Capcom would create. Um, It was, though, the game that spawned the entire Street Fighter series. Now, this original Street Fighter game wasn't quite up to the same standards as what we would eventually see with Street Fighter 2, but it did have many of the core elements that the rest of the Street Fighter series would eventually utilize, such as health bars for each of the characters that you were playing, one-on-one combat with kung fu antics, you would travel the world and take on different competitors, and as far as the main characters go, you had uh, Ryu and Ken as the main protagonists of the game, and of course those characters would continue on throughout the Street Fighter series. So the original Street Fighter had a lot of the elements that would eventually become its much more well-known brother, Street Fighter 2. Or, I guess, maybe son or daughter in this case, since it came after... Anyway, with Street Fighter's release in the arcades and almost immediate popularity, it really didn't take long before the company was looking at options for a sequel. So the team turned to several veteran Capcom designers and developers to begin working on that sequel, most notably a couple of individuals named Akira Nishitani and Yoshiki Okamoto. So Nishitani and Okamoto began to strategize about how to make this game, how to make the sequel to Street Fighter, and they gave it the working title Street Fighter 89, and that was really what the focus was, was to make the next Street Fighter. 89 certainly were obviously coming about as a result of the year that the game was going to be released in, so that was the code name they were working on this new title under. Around that time, though, Okamoto became aware of a side-scrolling beat-em-up title, so not a competitive fighter, but a side-scrolling beat-em-up that had released in the arcades back in 1988, and that title was Double Dragon 2, which was the second in what would become the Double Dragon series. And a minor tangent here, the Double Dragon series was actually a pretty popular side-scrolling beat-em-up game that was released both on the arcades as well as several home systems like the Nintendo Entertainment System, which is where I primarily played Double Dragon 2. I also recall the game being incredibly difficult to play. Maybe that was just me as a kid not uh, not being as good as what I would eventually become, but I remember those games being pretty darn difficult at the time. Anyway, After seeing that game in action, Okamoto decided to shift gears and use that core design as the basis for his new game. So rather than focus on what was the framework for Street Fighter with one-on-one combat, he decided that Street Fighter 89 was going to take on more of a side-scrolling, beat-em-up type of game like what Double Dragon 2 had put into play. Now, almost immediately, you can see the divergence between the original intent of being this competitive fighting game sequel to Street Fighter and what the game would eventually become that Okamoto wanted to develop. Regardless, they still kept the name Street Fighter 89 as they continued to work on the game. So with that core concept and design in place, work began on actually creating the game. And to assist with the creation of the game, Okamoto had recruited a fellow Capcom employee named Akira Yasuda um, to the team. 
And Yasuda had joined Capcom back in 1985, but he did work with Okamoto previously when he had acted as the designer for a game called Forgotten Worlds, which was a side-scrolling shooter title that was released in arcades in 1988. Forgotten Worlds, interestingly, was the first game released on what was Capcom's new arcade system hardware, the CP system, or CPS. So we should take a step back here and talk once again about arcade hardware. We did a little bit of a discussion around arcade hardware when we talked Neo Turf Masters in relation to the Neo Geo system. But just to refresh everybody's memory or for if you haven't listened to that episode, uh, the whole concept of arcade machines at the time, for the most part, was you had these gigantic arcade cabinets and inside each of those cabinets were very specific hardware that was dedicated to whatever game was being played within that cabinet. So you didn't really have interchangeability for the most part. That started to change a little bit where arcade systems would be designed such that they had some core components that wouldn't really change from game to game, like the same motherboard or the same memory configuration or something like that. And then they would have the ability to update those machines with new memory chips or new ROM chips that would actually house the game itself. So they weren't actually creating truly one-to-one dedicated hardware for each of the individual machines. But generally speaking, the hardware in an arcade machine was still very dedicated and very focused to the games that were being played on that cabinet. Neo Geo changed that a little bit when it was released because the Neo Geo was a cartridge-based arcade system. And what that meant was that it basically mimicked a lot of the cartridge-based home consoles of the time, like the Nintendo Entertainment System, the Sega Master System, the Atari systems that were out there. And rather than having all of this dedicated hardware with ROM chips that would be installed in the machine and would contain the game, you could literally hot-swap cartridges, or maybe not hot-swap, but you could swap cartridges between or within an arcade machine, and you could change the game that the machine would play. There were also options within the Neo Geo ecosystem of having multiple cartridges in a single arcade cabinet that then players could just switch between via software versus having to change the physical hardware or the physical cartridges that were in the machine. Neo Geo also released into the home market. They had a version of Neo Geo that was a home system where you could basically play the exact same arcade game that was in the arcades, albeit in the comfort of your living room, which was kind of awesome, but it was also kind of expensive. Still, Neo Geo at the time was the only game in town if you wanted to replicate the arcade experience at home, short of buying a physical arcade machine for your house. So going back to the Capcom CP system, that was originally conceptualized in 1986 as a way to help make arcade machines more easily maintained and operated by changing the overall design so that a single core motherboard can run any number of games, and those games could be swapped into the machine using separate darter boards. So very similar to what we were just talking about, similar to the Neo Geo, albeit not cartridge-based per se. But in this way, the motherboard would remain in place and retain all of the core hardware that would be necessary for the operation of the machine, but the individual game darter boards could contain game-specific information and hardware that could be swapped, similar to how the cartridge-based systems like the NES or the Neo Geo from an arcade perspective would work. It wasn't quite as elegant as the Neo Geo cartridge solution, but it was a very similar kind of concept. Also similar to the Neo Geo, Capcom had grand plans for releasing a home console version of the CP system, which was going to be called the CPS Changer, and that would allow for arcade games to be played at home, just like what the Neo Geo Advanced Entertainment System, or AES, would would become. 
Unlike the Neo Geo, however, the CPS changer never really caught on with the general public. Only 11 titles were ever released in its the entirety of the console's lifetime, and all of those titles, including the machine, I believe, could only be purchased in Japan via mail order. So this wasn't one of those large-scale kind of distribution things. It was a very limited distribution, and not many people had the opportunity to really buy the console, buy the games, and enjoy that in their home. It was, though, slightly less expensive than the Neo Geo AES, but there was considerably less software support. Just to refresh everybody's memory, the Neo Geo AES uh, came in around $600-ish or so back in the early 90s, so if you include inflation, it's a lot more, or would have been a lot more in today's value. Uh, the CPS changer was a little bit less expensive than that. The games were a little bit less expensive, fairly comparable to the Neo Geo, but with only 11 titles ever created for the system, didn't really get any of that support, didn't really get any sort of pervasive buy-in from the broader gaming community. Now, one interesting semi-unrelated tangent. The CP system itself was home to numerous bootleg games, including what would be a ridiculous number of unsanctioned Street Fighter II variations. It was so bad that in some countries, the bootleg versions of the games were more common than the real releases. And this is one where there has been a lot of almost urban myth around some of these bootleg copies, specifically of Street Fighter II. I believe there was one version that, if I recall correctly, it was something called the Rainbow version, which had all sorts of modifications and alterations to the game and was highly sought after to be played. And basically, when you went into an arcade, not necessarily everywhere, but in certain arcades, you would go into the arcade, you wouldn't even know if you were playing the bootleg version or the real version. And sometimes when people would start playing Street Fighter at home, they didn't even realize, they were like, why is this so different than what I played in the arcade? And the reason for that is that the version that they likely played in the arcade was one of those bootlegs and wasn't actually representative of the core game itself. So, minor tangent aside, I mention all of this because Street Fighter 89 was being developed for the CP system, and its final version would in fact be one of the 11 titles released for the home version of the console. So when you think about those 11 titles, think Street Fighter 89, or the game that Street Fighter 89 would eventually become, was actually one of those 11 titles that were released in Japan mail order for the CPS changer. Returning to the creation of the game, Focus, once again, was on how to make sure this new title, which had a different style than the original Street Fighter, uh, how it would be able to maintain any sort of lineage with that original game. So the team did try to create a degree of continuity there. They initially wanted to include both Ryu and Ken as the main characters in the game, but that idea was eventually scrapped in favor of a brand new plot and a brand new setting with all new characters. So that piece of continuity kind of went out the window and the team decided that they were going to go with new plot, new setting, new characters, basically new everything. Now, there was a strong desire for the new game to mimic action movies of the time. And in fact, I found this interesting. The development team was actually directed by their leadership, by management, to watch a number of action and kung fu movies in order to inspire them in the creation of the game. And what Capcom really wanted to do with this title, was to create a game that could be as film-like as possible. They wanted to create a cinematic, side-scrolling, beat-em-up kind of game. So they wanted to make sure 
that the development team was taking inspiration from what would have been very popular at the time, those being the action and kung fu movies of the 80s, which anybody who's lived through the 80s or anybody that has a uh, strong affinity towards the 80s can probably recognize that that was kind of an amazing time frame for action movies and kung fu movies. And there was just so many out there. And I remember being a kid and watching Chuck Norris movies, which I know everybody knows Chuck Norris now, at least across the internet, as being just like this awesome meme kind of guy. But Chuck Norris movies were actually kind of awesome too. And um, they, so those are the kind of movies that the development team would watch as they were preparing to create what they wanted to create, which was the cinematic side scrolling beat em up game. In order to make sure that the game was really hard hitting, or at least appeared to be hard hitting, the team decided to make the game a very in-your-face kind of experience, with a lot of large sprite work for the characters and detailed backgrounds for all of the scenes. Now, the music similarly had to be composed to be very hard-hitting and fast-paced, which would really hopefully embody the desire for an action movie feel. The team created a large gang of bad guys, and some of them were just recolors of each other, but they created a pretty large cast of bad guys in the game, and they took inspiration from various popular media of the time, including a bunch of 1980s rock musicians. Uh, They also included some other Capcom game characters and popular wrestlers, or at least the inspiration for certain characters came from some popular wrestlers like Andre the Giant. This is one of those things that, and just so everybody knows, I played Final Fight a lot as a kid on the Super NES, but still, I played Final Fight a lot. And I guess it should have been obvious, as a even as a kid, that the names of most of these characters or a lot of these characters were very similar to a bunch of the uh, 1980s very famous rock musicians, but I never realized it. I must have been oblivious or just playing the game and not really caring about the names of the characters or something because playing it as an adult, you can very clearly and very quickly see, oh yeah, that they must have been doing a play on so-and-so or something like that. As a kid, I just didn't care. I was, I just enjoyed beating people up. So it, it was funny to me that I completely didn't even realize that was a thing when I played the game as a kid, but Obviously, there was something behind it because that was the intention of the original development team. Now, they continued to work on the game, and as the game neared release, they began to preview the title to arcade operators. And this is something that would typically happen when an arcade game was being created. There would be an initial period before the game is released where they would actually demonstrate the the games to arcade operators in the hopes of selling more units because ultimately the goal of the development team was to sell those arcade machines and if they could impress the arcade operators then they would get larger orders for those machines for the arcade operators to put into their arcades and make money and everybody profits unfortunately when they started showing this game it actually caused a fair amount of confusion because street fighter 89 and it was still called street fighter 89 at this time was nothing like the original Street Fighter. It had, we already talked about some of the ways it was different. It was not a competitive fighting game. It didn't have a focus on -on one-on-one combat. It was just a very different kind of beast, intentionally so, because that's what the development team wanted to create. But naming it or keeping the name as Street Fighter 89 was just causing a lot of confusion. There was not really any continuity between the original Street Fighter and this title, So arcade operators were kind of confused, like, why are you calling it this game? It has nothing to do with Street Fighter. So it was determined 
that the name of the game would be too confusing to keep, so the team decided to rebrand it as, you might guess it, Final Fight. That game, in its final form, released to the arcades in late 1989 and was pretty much immediately a success. There were three different playable characters that were included in the game, and there was a straight-from-Hollywood storyline, just a summarize here and we'll talk more about this in a little bit but the mayor's daughter is kidnapped by a gang who's taken over the entire city and he the girlfriend's boyfriend and another friend have to clean up the streets so this is like a very traditional 1980s style action story where you got the boyfriend you got the father you got the other friend who are just going to go kung fu all over the city and and clean up the streets it is about as 80s as you can get and this was the storyline for final fight similarly Final Fight would really create this hard-hitting action similar to the action movies of the time, and it would become the highest-selling arcade machine in Japan in 1990. Even in 1991, so even as it moved into its second full year of release, it was the second-highest-grossing arcade machine in 1991. And uh, interesting little factoid here, the game that actually beat it in 1991 for overall sales was the real Street Fighter 2. So kind of funny how that played out, that Street Fighter 2 was the only arcade machine to actually perform better than Final Fight in 1991. The game itself, beyond the arcades, would be ported to a bunch of different consoles and platforms, each, as usually happens, with their own features or lack thereof. And that was just kind of the name of the game whenever arcade machines or arcade games would be ported to home consoles. A couple of examples, because I find the whole process of porting these games absolutely fascinating with some of the concessions that have to happen as you transition from one platform to another. So on the Super Nintendo version, which, like I said, was the version I primarily played as a child, the Super Nintendo version only had two of the three characters. They had Cody and they had Mike Hagar were the two characters. They did not have Guy in the game, who was the third character. There was also no multiplayer mode. And there were also some limitations around the number of enemies that could be on the screen at one time. So for anybody who's played a side-scrolling beat-em-up, you recognize that the more enemies on the screen at the time, the more chaotic it gets, but also the more fun, because it is just fun beating guys up. Unfortunately, the Super Nintendo version, because it was limited in overall power, could only have up to three enemies on the screen at once. That is in comparison to the arcade version, which was able to have 10 enemies on screen at one time. So a dramatic reduction in the number of enemies that could actually be displayed on screen at any one time on the Super Nintendo version. Moving along to the Sega CD version, that actually had most of the features of the arcade version, but it still couldn't replicate the total number of enemies on the screen at once. It also had poorer quality graphics than the arcade version because the Sega CD and ultimately the Sega Genesis just were not as powerful as their arcade machines either. It did, however, add some new features that had not been prevalent on the arcade machine or hadn't actually been done at all on the arcade machine. That being voice acting for the opening and ending cutscenes, which is really interesting to me. And I I admit, I did not watch the opening and ending cutscenes for the Sega CD version. So I have no idea what the quality of the voice acting was for those particular versions or that particular version of the game. But I do find it interesting. I always find it interesting when games start to throw in voice acting and things like that for games that didn't already have it or wasn't already planned in the beginning when the game was being developed. 
I will definitely go out and, and look at that at some point or maybe even play the game because, well, hey, I just like playing those games. Final Fight itself would be followed by multiple sequels released on home consoles as well as a bunch of re-releases as part of various anthology collections over the years. And there was more of a legacy here because characters from Final Fight would also appear in other Capcom titles as well, most prominently the Street Fighter series. There would be a bunch of characters that originated in Final Fight that would make their way over to the Street Fighter series, which was the original intent behind Final Fight. That was to be the second Street Fighter game created. It's interesting how those things play out sometimes. Even though Final Fight was not the second Street Fighter, it did eventually have some crossover appeal, and some of the characters from Final Fight did make their way over into that home series. Now, there would be a ton of side-scrolling beat-em-up games released, especially around this time. There were just a lot of people working on side-scrolling beat-em-up games. Final Fight was one of those games that truly captured the attention of gamers all over the world. It may not be quite as fondly remembered as games like The Simpsons or Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Turtles in Time, or Streets of Rage 2 on the Sega Genesis, but it still remains a landmark title for Capcom, and one that would remain relevant for years to come. We are now going to talk more about the act of playing the game itself and how it feels to play the game itself in 2022. That game, of course, is Final Fight, which, as we said, was a side-scrolling beat-em-up game that originated in the arcades back in 1989. So I've been using the term side-scrolling beat-em-up game a lot. And my assumption is many of you listening to this episode probably know what I mean when I say side-scrolling beat-em-up game, but just to make sure that we are all on the same page. When I'm talking about a side-scrolling beat-em-up game, basically what that means is that you control one of any number of characters. Oftentimes there is some sort of selection for your character earlier on in the game, and you might be able to switch characters in between deaths. Those are all dependent on the game you're playing. But basically you pick a character, that character may or may not have special abilities or special traits that distinguish it from other characters, and then you effectively move from left to right on the screen, or right to left or up and down, depending on what the game is, and you kick the butts of all of the bad guys that you possibly can. And most of these games have multiple levels. Some games have multiple sub-levels within their levels that you can effectively progress through. Most of them have a ton of different bad guys. One of the things that beat-em-up games are notorious for is reskinning some of their bad guys to make the overall bestiary a little bit larger and not have to create brand new versions of different uh, evil characters. And when I say reskin, basically what that means is you create a version of a bad guy or of a character, and then maybe one version is wearing green clothes. And that version might be easy or easier. And then maybe later on in the game, you find the same exact visual of the character. So it looks the same for the most part, except rather than wearing green clothes, 
He's wearing red clothes, and the red clothes version of the character is way harder than the green clothes version, and they have a different name and all that kind of stuff. So fight em up or beat em up games are notorious for reskinning characters and reusing the overall character models, albeit with different colors, in order to convey the fact that they are, in fact, a different character and may have different levels of strength or different skills than the other original version of the character that you may encounter in the game. Most of the time when you're playing a beat-em-up game, there are various destructible items in the environment. You might be able to throw people into telephone boxes, which uh, that's a thing that's probably not all that much in use anymore. Just think about Doctor Who if you want to have a reference for kind of like a, a telephone box. Uh, or telephone booth, I should say. I'm not even saying the word correctly. A telephone booth, you can see how how not pervasive that is anymore. But you might be able to throw people into the telephone booths, or you might be able to throw people into other items in the environment or other objects in the environment. You may also be able to break open barrels or other pieces of the environment to obtain items, and items can range anywhere from weapons that you can pick up to beat up the bad guys with, or they might contain food items that will give you health back. There might be some gems or other types of items that simply serve to increase your overall score. There's all sorts of things that beat-em-up games have used over time to reward the player for either exploration or for just beating bad guys up or for just destroying everything in sight. So there's a lot of different ways that they've done that. Each game does it a little bit differently. Most beat-em-up games have a number of levels to progress through. Usually it's between like six and eight-ish. That's not a hard and fast rule, but because a lot of beat-em-up games originated in arcades, a lot of times they were kind of around the same general framework as far as the levels, the level uh, makeup, and the kinds of things that would be in each of those levels. And almost always, these levels would end with some sort of boss fight. And the boss fight usually was a unique character that wasn't necessarily a reskin of a pre-existing character. Though, I will say, some games did take those bosses from early levels and have them be regular characters in later levels to basically show how the difficulty was continuing to ramp up from those early levels into the later levels. The one other thing I do want to talk about before we start getting a little bit more specific about Final Fight around the whole concept of beat-em-up games, especially in the arcades, a lot of times the arcade versions of beat-em-ups were incredibly difficult. And you can think about this from the perspective of the arcade operators and the developers of the game. If you're making an arcade machine, as an arcade operator, when you buy one of those machines, your goal is to make money by having the players spend quarters on the machine. So, it is not in the arcade operator's best interest to have the arcade machines be very easy to play or very easy to beat because that means that the player is going to be spending a lot of time on your machine and spending a very little amount of money. So oftentimes arcade games are dramatically more difficult than what home versions of a given title might be because they want to make money. They want the player to to play for a while on the machine but not for free they basically want them to keep pumping quarters into the machine so that the arcade operator would make money and would make more money than if the game was easier so a lot of side-scrolling beat-em-up games would at certain points have very difficult sections where in order to get past it you basically just had to pump the thing full of quarters and hope that you didn't run out before you would be able to get further in the game so 
That's a little bit about general beat-em-ups and what I mean when I say beat-em-up games. For this particular episode of the podcast, I played Final Fight, and I specifically played the arcade version of the game because I wanted to see what the original version felt like. And like I talked about before, with this podcast, I really do want to play the original version of all of these games so that I can have a, a unfettered or unbiased opinion of how that version plays in relation to the rest of gaming today in 2022. As a kid, though, my main experience was the, with the game was with the Super NES version. I played that thing a ton. My brother and I actually played the Super Nintendo version of the game a ton. We would take turns and try to get farther into the levels, and it was just a heck of a time. Really enjoyable. So before we start talking about the specific elements of the game, like graphics and sound and music and things like that, I do want to take a look at what the back of the box says, because oftentimes when we would pick up games back in the late 80s, early 90s, it's not like we have the World Wide Web to go out to and, and take a look and read reviews. And a lot of times even gaming magazines didn't have a whole heck of a lot of information about some of these games. So oftentimes if you were in a video rental store or you were at a, a gaming store like Tours R Us with those awesome hang tags that you would take up to the uh, register and then go to the back room to pick up your game. Anybody remember those? I used to love Toys R Us. Any, anyway, when you would go into these game stores, sometimes the only thing you had available to look at was the box and was the, the artwork for the box and what the back of the box said. So for Final Fight, for the Super Nintendo version, which is the version, like I said, that I played at home, the back of the box says Final Fight. Mayor Mike Hagar vows to snatch the streets of Metro City back from the crooks with his bare knuckles, but the Mad Gear gang snatches his daughter Jessica. Now there's gonna be some bone-crunching dues to pay. Jessica's boyfriend Cody hits the street hard with Hagar, denting heads downtown and slugging it out in the slums. He's a one-man army. His weapons are anything he can find. Swords, knives, or pipes. Now you are Hagar or Cody, each with his own fighting style. Demolish gangland henchmen, samurai swordsmen, and muscle-bound crime bosses in a, in a fist-to-nose frenzy. Five murderous levels of arcade-quality combat. Find hidden weapons as you rumble through the streets and clash in wrestling or boxing style. So that is what the back of the box says, and, well... It sold me. I mean, <laughs> if you're looking for a hard-hitting arcade-style beat-em-up, sounds like a pretty good time. So with that, we are going to move into the more specific sections of the review. We're going to talk about the graphics, sound and music, the narrative and story, which the game does have, playability and controls, and then the overall feel of playing the experience. So starting with graphics. The graphics for this game, and once again, we are talking about the arcade title specifically when we're going through this section, but the graphics here were pure, chunky, large sprite goodness. There was a ton of detail in the environments and the characters. Every Everything was really nicely detailed. There were a bunch of different environment types. There were cool effects that were at play, like different environmental hazards that would be included in the game. Um, the graphics were just really well done and you could see how they were going for a very in-your-face style everything felt almost like it was oversized every single character was larger than life and much larger than a lot of other games that you might see out there so i thought the graphics looked great i have literally no complaints about the graphics the only thing i will say 
is, and we talked about this a little bit before, there were a number of characters, specifically the bad guys, that were effectively just palette swaps. So the character diversity wasn't quite 100% there, but with a side-scrolling beat-em-up game, that's pretty much the name of the game. And it's pretty much expected in the genre. That's just the way these games generally worked. So the fact that there were palette swaps of characters didn't really bother me. It's just one thing that I could mention as, eh, that's something I could call attention to from a graphical perspective. Otherwise, though, not a big deal at all. And I really enjoyed the character designs, especially Mike Hagar. Mike Hagar is my guy. I always played as Mike Hagar uh, just because I thought he was awesome. He had a wrestling background, and we'll talk more about the story stuff when we get there in a little bit, but I loved uh, Mike Hagar as a character. He was always the guy I would play, and I thought that he was really well-detailed. I mean, super big, macho-looking guy with an awesome mustache. Uh, I guess it was more awesome back in the 80s and early 90s, but regardless, I thought he was awesome. The graphics, other than Mike Hagar as well, were just really well done. Moving on to talk about the sound and the music, the soundtrack for the game was good. It was pretty punchy. I don't know that there were any tracks in the game that I would particularly remember. I do have some memories just because I played the game a lot, but I don't know that any of these titles or any of these soundtracks were things that I would be, or any of the songs were things I'd be humming just randomly walking around the street. Maybe if there were a bunch of bad guys to beat up, I'd start humming some of the final fight or uh, songs out there. Maybe not that probably not, but in any event, nothing was super duper memorable. It's not that it's forgettable. It's just one of those soundtracks that work in the moment. It's just, it didn't transcend the game. And the reason I say that is because you could all think of the game, think of like some of your favorite games out there and, and some of the ones that have incredible soundtracks. The thing that makes those soundtracks incredible is that they transcend the game that they're in. It's not like it's, oh, well, that's just a good soundtrack or that's just a good track of music within that game. It is just a good track of music in general and something you would listen to basically anywhere or at any time. A Final Fight soundtrack was good, but it was good for the game. I don't know that I would take that soundtrack out of the game and listen to it on my CD player. It's just not one of those kind of soundtracks. It was definitely, it worked within the confines of the game. I think that it matched the action really well and every environment felt like the music was well matched to the environment that you'd be walking through or fighting through. It just wasn't something that I would say, oh yeah, it it actually transcends the game itself. Sound effects were exactly what you would expect from a side-scrolling beat-em-up. Every hit, every bone-crunching thud, every jump, every scream, every yell, all that stuff, every time you hit somebody with a lead pipe, it was all reflected really nicely in the game. Of course, it wasn't ultra-realistic because that wasn't what they were going for, but the sound effects worked within the confines of the action that you were seeing on the screen. I really have no complaints here. The sound, the music, the, the effects, everything really combined together to make something that felt like it fit, felt like it really belonged within the game. Now we're going to talk a little bit about narrative and story, and we alluded to this a little bit earlier. This is a true Hollywood-style story. It's really evocative of the action movies of the 80s in particular, the 80s and early 90s. So we're going to go over the story a little bit in more detail because I find this absolutely just, it, it, it tickles me in a good way. So we're going to go through the story. 
the story is set, or the game is set, in a city called Metro City, which is basically New York City, but not called New York. So, Metro City. The city's crime rate had reached an all-time high. Crime was rampant until Mike Hagar was elected the new mayor. Hagar was a former pro wrestler who decided to become a politician, which back then probably people were like, oh my God, that's so, that is so fake. No way could a wrestler become a politician or it just wasn't going to happen. Wrestlers aren't able to do that. And then of course, Jesse, the body Ventura became the governor of Minnesota in the late nineties. And everybody kind of shook their head and said, well, I guess we were wrong about that. Um, in any event, Mike Hagar was a former wrestler, became a politician. I do have a, a somewhat embarrassing story about myself. And I told you guys just a little bit ago, I am a Mike Hagar guy. I think he was, he was my main character for the game. Anytime I played final fight, I would always play Mike Hagar. I liked the character so much that, um, back in the early nineties, there were these mail-in wrestling federations, and I may be speaking about stuff that nobody has any clue what I'm talking about, but please forgive the tangent. It's just something that I find amusing to me and something that I was thinking about the other day that popped into my memory, and I was like, oh, that was that was fun. So back in the early 90s, there were these mail-in wrestling federations. We didn't really have the internet. We didn't have an ability to really exchange information digitally. So there would be these actual organizations that would run these fake wrestling federations where you would basically create a character. You would send in the name of the character. You'd also have to send in some money because I guess that's how they made a living or how they made some profit. You would send it in and then these federations would generate match outcomes. They would pair up the different characters that were submitted and they would then send you effectively a newsletter with the outcomes of all of the different matches that had played out over the course of the last month. And depending on how well you did, you might be able to be going for the championship of the Federation and you have a different win-loss record. And it was just a fun time. And I was a huge wrestling fan. I, I still like wrestling. I don't really watch it much anymore, but I was a huge wrestling fan back in the early 90s. And the reason I bring up this story is because for that wrestling federation that I participated in, uh, I named my character, my wrestler, Mike Hagar, which is just totally unoriginal, not creative at all. I literally gave him the same backstory as what Mike Hagar had in Final Fight. So I wasn't as creative as a kid as I would eventually become once I got a little bit older. I don't know. I just thought it was an interesting, funny story. Let's you into a little bit of, of my psyche and some of the some of the fact that I'm kind of a uh, kind of a geek. In any way, or in any event, uh, Hagar did. And getting back to the game, Hagar did eventually clean up the streets and the citizens were grateful, except for the Mad Gear gang. They were the primary crime faction in the city and they would remain a threat even after Hagar cleaned up the streets. They actually tried to bribe Hagar. What were they thinking? They tried to bribe the newly elected mayor, but Hagar wasn't budging. He was not going to have his career, his reputation tarnished, so he turned down the bribe. And what does any evil gang do when they can't make their way reasonably with the people that they're trying to deal with? Obviously, they kidnap the guy's daughter and they say, you know what, this is going to bring him under control. This is going to be the thing that makes him listen to reason and listen to us and, and let us run the streets. 
Instead, because remember, Hagar was a former pro wrestler who just became a politician somehow. Hagar got angry, and he vowed to bring them to justice with his fists. Now, luckily for Hagar, there would be other characters who would join the fight, including Cody Travers, who was a martial arts expert, obviously. He was also Jessica's boyfriend, because of course. And Guy, the most creatively named character in the whole game, who was an American ninja in training, because every game or every fighting movie of the 80s and early 90s needed some sort of ninja, because ninjas make everything better. Those three characters join forces to bring justice to the gang and save Jessica. And ultimately, spoiler alert, that is what happens. Now, I recognize that I was having a little bit of fun with this story. The story in the background for the game is kind of comical in an over-the-top 80s, 90s action way, and I made a little bit of fun of it as I was talking through it, but I only did that because I absolutely loved it. (laughs) I thought the story was amazing. These are the kind of things that I grew up with. I grew up with these kind of movies that had these kind of far-fetched storylines that I just thought were... I just thought they were great. And I thought that the story for this game was great. Yes, it was over the top. Yes, it didn't necessarily make a ton of sense, but it really did fit well with the aesthetic that the development team was going for. It did create that action movie feel in the confines of an arcade machine. As game stories go, you could do way worse than this. And the fact that this was the storyline for a side-scrolling beat-em-up game, which The focus there is really all on the action. I thought it was great. I have no complaints about the story. I would would watch a movie of this story. And actually, I think I probably watched like five of them over the course of my childhood. But I thought it was really good. I thought it matched really well with what they were going for from the game. And I have no complaints about the narrative or story. Similarly, with the playability and controls, the game controls wonderfully. All of the actions you need to perform are simplified dramatically, as most beat-em-up titles have. So basically, when you're moving around the screen, you use your joystick to move in any direction, up, down, left, right, diagonal, and then you had buttons for punches and kicks. And depending on how you would interact with the characters or with the environment, those different moves would do different things. So as an example, if you walked into a bad guy, that would automatically grapple them and you could then hold them and punch them in the gut or you might be able to jump and you would uh, jump up and slam them down into the ground. You could also press both buttons at the same time and execute a special move, which very similar to other beat-em-up games, if you used a special move and you hit the characters, you would actually lose a little sliver of life. That was just a way to balance out the overall experience so that people weren't just spamming these special moves and trying to move through the game without any sort of challenge. So the controls felt great. There was a ton of environmental interaction and you could destroy large pieces of the environment. There were hazards you had to avoid. There were items and weapons to pick up. It was just a really fun experience navigating the game world and interacting with the game world. So I do just want to say that we talked about this with the difficulty around beat-em-up games Because this was an arcade game, and arcade games were pretty much designed to eat your quarters, Final Fight was no exception to that general rule around beat-em-up games. This was a challenging game. Now, luckily, I'm playing it 
I'm on the arcade version, but I'm playing it from the comfort of home. So if I want to add a quarter, that literally just in- involves pressing a button versus going to the change machine and exchanging my dollar for a couple of quarters. So I was able to get through the game without too much difficulty because I could just keep playing. There's a little bit of a difference when you were actually in the arcades and you might run out of money before you could beat the game because some sections are really challenging and some sections almost feel designed to be nearly impossible without spending a ton of money on the game. That might just be my skill level, but it really did feel pretty challenging at certain points. I'm not saying that this differs from the way arcades were in general. Most arcade machines and most arcade games were designed to make you spend your money. But I do feel it warrants a mention if you are playing it, it is definitely a challenging experience at certain portions of the game. So how does the game feel to play overall? How well does it hold up? Final Fight is just one of those games that is pure, mindless fun. You, yes, there's a story, but it's kind of a fun story. And, and it, it's just everything is over the top. It just felt really enjoyable to play. And I will say that the fun ratchets up immensely when you play co-op with a friend. It is absolutely a joy to play when you're just solo kicking the butts out of all the bad guys. Well, geez, that would kind of hurt, but just beating up all the bad guys. It was just a ton of fun as a solo player. You add a buddy to it and there is just something about kicking the crap out of a bunch of enemies with a buddy that it just makes you feel like you're the star of an action movie. And it is just pure mindless entertainment. As far as beat-em-up games go, this is one that I would put up there as an example of how to do it right. That being said, there are some criticisms that I have of the game. I've been very positive about the experience in general because I think it's an amazing game, but there are some critiques that I have to make. Number one, the difficulty can sometimes be problematic. We talked about that already, so I'm not going to go into too much more detail here, but there are some areas and some certain stages and areas of stages in the game that just get really challenging, unfortunately so, because it's not a natural ramp up. It feels like it's a almost like a, a, a gating kind of thing where unless you spend a certain amount of coins, you're not going to get past those stages. So I did find the difficulty in some areas a little bit problematic for that reason. Additionally, the game itself is very short. There's only a handful of stages there. There are two bonus rounds where you kick the crap out of a car and break a bunch of glass panels because, you know, why not? But the overall game, you can get through really quickly. And I know arcade games in particular are usually not these sprawling, epic kinds of experiences that you would spend a ton of time playing. But at the same time, there have been other beat-em-up games that do take longer to play and have a little bit more depth to them. So I do need to call out that Final Fight as a game is pretty darn short. Playing it at home the way that most people would in 2022 the overall shortness of the game actually becomes a little bit more pronounced because when you're playing it in the arcade, you may not have the fortitude or the desire to spend all your quarters on a single game, which means you may only make it halfway through the game before you decide, hey, I'm going to go play this other shiny machine over here. At home, you don't have that limitation, so you just keep hitting the credits button and you keep going in the game and you keep having fun, and then you realize that the game is done. So that is something that I do have to have to say, especially when I'm looking at it through the lens of 2022 and the way we would typically play the game in 2022, 
left a little bit to be desired. It could have been a little bit deeper, a little bit longer of an experience. It was a fun experience. I just wish it was a little bit longer. Now, I will say that uh, while I played on a traditional arcade emulator, there has been, over the last few years, there was a release of Final Fight as part of the arcade one-up line of three-quarter size scale uh, releases, and Final Fight was one of the arcade machines that they had released. Now, that, of course, is also an emulator. I don't have that particular arcade one-up machine, so I cannot compare that experience to playing on a more traditional emulator hooked up to a large screen TV or monitor or something like that. But I did want to mention that Final Fight did or was one of those releases. I even think that it was included in one of the newer releases because Final Fight was one of the original arcade one-up machines that they had created. And then I believe they've made refinements to the design over time and made things better and They may have actually re-released Final Fight along with other games at some point over the last year or two. Not 100% sure on that, but Arcade 1-Up is making those machines. Final Fight was one of them. So with all that said, is Final Fight, or what is Final Fight? Is Is it belong, does it belong to the pantheon of classic gaming? You know, for me, I love the game. I can't put it into the Pantheon. It is absolutely a golden oldie. It is a good game. It's actually a really good game, and you should play it. Yeah, yeah, you and you. You should both play it. Everybody should play this game because it is that fun, and you will probably enjoy the experience. Is it a game that you're going to play more than once or twice after you see what all the fuss is about? Eh, probably not. I don't think it's something where you're going to be coming back to it day after day and continuing to play the game because it's super short. You'll get through it relatively quickly. And then it's like, well, you could try the different characters. So that's true. There's a little bit of replayability there. You might play with a friend. So you'll probably play it a few times. I don't think it's going to be something that'll be in your standard rotation, though, especially given the availability of other games with a lot of additional content that buy for your attention. And especially considering that there have been some really high quality beat up collections or beat up games released recently, such as uh, Streets of Rage 4, which was a modern or more modern version of the Streets of Rage series that was released relatively recently, which was absolutely awesome. There's the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Carabunga collection, which collects a bunch of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle side-scrolling beat-em-up games. So with all of that content vying for your attention, are you going to go back to Final Fight more than a few times? I, I don't think so. But should it be experienced at least once or at least a couple times? Absolutely. It remains a great game, especially if you play the full-featured arcade version. So if you play the full-featured arcade version, you're going to see what all the fuss was about. I cannot imagine someone playing this and not smiling at the sheer carnage of beating up an entire gang of ruffians while you save the damsel in distress. It is that darn good, and for that reason, it is one of my personal golden oldies. was our episode on final fight i hope you all enjoyed listening to it as much as i enjoyed creating it 
If you'd like to send me some feedback, either about this episode, the game, or give us advice or ideas for future games, I would love to hear from you. There are a couple ways you can get in touch with me. You can either reach me on Twitter with the handle at ClassicGamingT, or you can send me an email. I have an email address, which is ClassicGamingToday at gmail.com. I am legitimately interested in hearing what you all think, so I hope you feel free to reach out and drop me a note. Before we call it, our next episode is going to be focused on Commander Keen, which was id Software's first series as id Software. So if anybody has any particular memories of Commander Keen or would like to talk about the game, feel free to write in. I am definitely interested in hearing what you all think. At the same time, if you would be so kind as to review me on your podcast service of choice, I recognize that this podcast is available pretty much everywhere. So wherever you're listening to it, if it accepts reviews, feel free to leave a review if you so desire. This is not about bolstering star counts. I absolutely would love to get great reviews because I think that means we're doing something right. But my goal here is to really understand what we can do and what we need to do in order to be the best possible podcast that we can be. We're still growing, still trying to develop the community as we go. The only way we can do that is if I get the feedback from all of you that will enable us to make this the best darn podcast possible. So we will be back in around a week with our next episode focused on Commander Keen. Until then, remember, sometimes the games of the past are just as good, if not better, than the games of today. Goodbye, everyone. Goodbye.